We're starting a series. We actually started it last week. We didn't know it was a series. But Pastor Brian brought you a message from Revelation chapter 2 last week on the church in Ephesus. And we just decided that we were going to take the next six weeks, we're going to do a series that we've titled Love Letters, and we are going to bring you the scriptures from the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, where the Apostle John, who had followed Jesus during his ministry, the Apostle John, who referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, we know Jesus loved all his disciples, but John specifically had that connection with Jesus. He referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was old in years, and he had been exiled in a punishment for his faith to an island called Patmos. And while he was alone on this island, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, that an angel of the Lord came to him and took him up in a vision. And in this vision, he was given a vision of heaven. And that vision of heaven really starts in Revelation chapter 4, but in the first three chapters of Revelation, we see that Jesus Christ himself begins to speak to the apostle John in this vision. And he tells John, I want you to write these letters to the seven churches that were in the area that we would now today call Asia Minor. These were churches that the Apostle John would have been involved in. He probably helped plant these churches. He ministered to these churches. He had taught in these churches. And Jesus told him, I want you to write seven letters to these churches. And in these letters, we find that there is wisdom in these letters, in these love letters to the churches from Jesus, if you will. There is wisdom that we can apply. So Pastor Brian and I got to thinking, we thought, what if Jesus Christ could write a letter to Eastland Life Church this morning? If Jesus wrote us a letter from his heart and sent it to our church, what would it say? We believe that in Revelation 2 and 3, we get that answer. We believe that we can take this scripture and we can apply it directly to us because in these seven churches, we will see tendencies that all of us share. So I want to read the scripture this morning. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and we believe the word angel here means messenger. This is most likely the, the pastor or somebody who delivers messages to this church says, to the messenger, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Church, this is the letter that Jesus had for this church in a town called Smyrna. Now, my question is, as we hear the words of God today, do we believe that he's going to speak to us? Church, we believe the word of God is living and active. We aren't here for words on a page. We are here for the living Lord to speak to us directly. The question is, do you have an ear today to receive it? The book of James says that if we hear the word but we don't do the word, we are deceiving ourselves. Amen? What a tragedy it would be for churches all across our country to open up the word of God today and to speak it and to hear it but not apply it. Church, may that not be us today. We want to receive the word of God today. We want to hear what God has to say to us. We want to take this letter and we want to apply it directly to our lives. Can we pray this morning before we get started? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter that you've written 
to Smyrna and to us this morning. God, help us to apply it and to understand it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Anybody ever endeavored, have you ever set out to read the book of Revelation? Anybody ever decided, I'm going to study the book of Revelation? Only three of you. Okay, the rest of you should read your Bible. I'm just kidding. (laughs) If you've ever sat down to read the book of Revelation, once you get to chapter 4, it gets pretty difficult to interpret. I will say that the book of Revelation is one of those books that if you take ten pastors and put them in a room, you might be lucky to find two that will agree on exactly what all of it means. All right, It is a difficult-to-interpret book. And it's difficult to interpret because it is a type of literature called prophecy. It's a type of literature called prophecy. And if you read prophecy in the Bible, you'll find some in the Old Testament, like in the book of Daniel. You find some in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation. When you're reading prophecy, we have to understand that some of what we are reading is exaggerated figurative language. You with me? It is exaggerated figurative language, but it has a literal meaning. In fact, I want to put it this way. Prophecy, when we read it, we understand that it is a figurative interpretation with a literal application. That's a really complicated way of saying this. When we read the words on the page, some of what we're going to read, we may not be able to interpret it literally. We're going to read about some numbers, and those numbers have deeper meanings than simply the numbers on the page. But what we know is that Jesus gave John these letters so that we could not only understand it, but apply it. Amen? When we read our Bible and it's complicated, understand that God wrote it so that we can understand it. It may be complicated on the surface, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit that we receive when we become Christians helps us to understand and apply the Word of God. So this morning, we believe that when we read Revelation, we can understand that even if the language is figurative, we can apply it to our lives in a literal way. So this morning, I want to look at this scripture, and I want us to be able to do that today. But before I do that, I want to talk about the town of Smyrna. I want to talk about the town of Smyrna. Smyrna is a bit of a weird word. It was actually named after a woman who had supposedly in history founded this town. That was very unusual for more than 2,000 years ago, the idea that a, a woman would have created and founded a town like Smyrna. But that's the legend, so that's what they named it. They named this town after her. Because the town of Smyrna had been founded by a very strong warrior woman, the town was notably feminist, all right? Smyrna was a feminist and, I would say, sexually free and expressive community. In fact, when we talk about the town of Smyrna, I think that we will be able to relate it a little bit to the country in which we live today. It was founded by a woman. It had very liberal, feministic ideology. It was a strong culture of feminism. And we see that happening in our country today. It was located on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Now, the Aegean Sea doesn't look much like the Ohio River, if you Google image it, all right? It's it's a little little more scenic than the city of Metropolis, if you will. We're situated on the river, but our Ohio River Bay is not exactly a coastal destination for people to come down and visit. Not a lot of cabins you can stay on on the banks of the Ohio River. But the Aegean Sea was beautiful. It was scenic. And this city of about 200,000 people... It was settled right on the coast of the Aegean Sea, 
So you had this beautiful view, this beautiful sea breeze that blew through the city. And in fact, it had been built in such a way, Alexander the Great had conquered it and rebuilt it in such a way that all the streets of the city ran perpendicular to the sea. So the idea was that no matter what street you were in, in the city of Smyrna, you would feel the sea breeze when you stepped outside your home or your building. It was a beautiful coastal elite place. It was on the ocean, so it had plenty of industry. It was rich. They were wealthy, and they were free. There was very little military activity in the city of Smyrna because back when the Roman military had actually suffered a defeat, it was some of the uh, citizens of Smyrna that had helped the Roman citizens. So they had an agreement with Rome that the Roman soldiers would not occupy the city in an invasive way. So they were culturally liberal, they were free, they were expressive in their relationships, they were rich, they were wealthy, they lived in a beautiful town, and they were pagans. Most of them worshipped idols, most of them worshipped Roman or Greek pagan gods, many of them actually worshipped the Roman Caesar, and they had a saying that if you wanted to be a citizen of Smyrna, you actually had to utter the words, Caesar is Lord. You had to be willing to utter these words. So you can imagine that these pagans, when they encountered the Christian church in Smyrna that began to proclaim publicly that Jesus is Lord, they had a problem with these people. Because of this, there was heavy persecution on the Christian church in the town of Smyrna. So what you have is a rich, coastal elite, liberal city with plenty of pagan worship, plenty of the old Jewish religion and, and, and ideology going on as well. They were religious people. They would basically tolerate any worldview except for Christianity. Sound familiar? Basically, you could do whatever you wanted. You could believe whatever you wanted. You could say whatever you wanted as long as you didn't say that Jesus was Lord. It was sort of like our world today. If you have a different religion or ideology, that's fine. If you want to be cultural, that's fine. If you want to be secular, that's fine. If you want to be pagan, that's fine. But the Christians are the problem in our world today. That's how our culture views it. This is not new. And this persecution that, they, that we face today, on a very minor level compared to what these Christians face, that is not new. That's been going on as long as Jesus Christ has been working in our world. So we can relate today in our little town of Metropolis, looking at the city of Smyrna, we can relate to the culture in which they lived. Because these Christians were being persecuted, they were suffering. They were suffering physical persecution. Many of them were being tortured. Many of them had been killed. But most of them, because they were doing their church underground and in secret, most of them were just being persecuted socially and economically. So basically, if you were a Christian in this day and you were unwilling to proclaim Caesar of Rome as Lord and instead you worship Jesus, the idea was you would be outcast from society. You would lose your citizenship. You would likely lose your job. You would likely lose your property. Uh, whatever you did own would be taxed very, very heavily. So poverty was was one of the main ways that the Christian church in this community was being persecuted. Now, I want to talk to you about what Jesus had to say to this church. And I think this is important today because as we look at where our country is going in America, I used to think it was crazy the idea that my generation could ever be persecuted for being a Christian in America. I used to think that was nuts. When some of the Older pastors used to preach about the coming persecution. I used to think, okay, that's probably a couple hundred years away. Now I'm thinking it's more like a couple years away. As I see the changes that are happening in our culture. Jesus wrote this letter to them to prepare them for what they were about to face. Now let me ask you today. 
Do you believe the church in our country today needs to hear from Jesus about how to prepare for what's coming? Because I do. I do. I fear, and maybe fear is not the right word, but I have a concern that the American church is ill-prepared for what's coming in our culture. I believe that we have failed to answer their questions. We have failed to identify ourselves appropriately. And in the coming years and decades, we and our children and some of your grandchildren are going to live in a culture that will not only not tolerate them, but I believe that active persecution is on its way within my lifetime. I believe that's very, very likely. Now, how severe that gets, I can't say. But the slope, as many of you can see, is very, very slippery. The America of even 10 years ago is no longer the America of today. It's happening quickly. The slope is slippery. And what these people encountered in the first century is what many of us are likely to encounter in the coming decades. So this letter to them is important to us. So let's look at what Jesus said to this church specifically. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, verse 8, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Jesus introduces himself with this title, the first and the last. The first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is a title that he used for himself way back in the Old Testament before Jesus burst on the scene. It's a title that Jesus used to refer to himself. We see it four times in the book of Revelation. The idea that Jesus is the first and he's the last. Church, we must understand that Jesus Christ was not simply a man. Amen? You say, well, listen, I believe that. I wouldn't come to church on Sunday morning if I believed that Jesus Christ was simply a man. You may be be surprised to discover that in our country today, almost half of people who call themselves Christians are not sure that Jesus Christ was actually God. They believe he was a man who was a great teacher and a great example, but they're not sure that he was God. You will hear today that Jesus Christ never actually in the Bible claimed to be God. That argument actually exists out there. Now, of course, it's nonsense. This is coming from people who don't read their Bible or don't know how to read their Bible. But the truth is, many people who call themselves followers of Christ believe him to simply be a good man, a good teacher, and a good example. But church, we know from our scripture that Jesus has always existed with God and as God. Amen? Jesus Christ is God. He is the only begotten Son of God. In fact, John, who wrote this letter, said it this way in his gospel. In fact, he began his gospel. He began the story of Jesus like this. He said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 2, it says, He. So he being the word, the word was not simply words on a page. It was not simply a message to read and understand. The word was a person. Jesus was the word. It said he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that had been made. John wanted to make clear that when we gather together in churches like Smyrna or at Eastland, we are not simply here to celebrate the life and the death of a great man. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who lived and died and rose again for me. And because he rose again for me, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all my fear is gone. You see, he's the first and the last. He doesn't say that he exists in the beginning and he exists in the end. He simply describes himself in the context of time. Jesus said, I am the first 
and I am the last. What that means is, is that Jesus Christ knows the outcome of my struggle. What that means is, is that the future that I get anxious about and the future that you're worried about and the uncertain things that lay ahead of us that keep us awake at night, Jesus is not only already there, but he is in control already there. Jesus is calling his shots. Jesus is in control. You say, I don't like the idea that there's somebody in control of my life. Let me testify to you today. I've tried to control my life, and I stink at it. The more control you give me, I can't keep this thing between the lines. So the idea that Jesus was there in my beginning, and he's already there at the end of my life, and that what happens to me and the legacy that I leave behind and the destiny that my children and my grandchildren are going to face, I don't have to fear it because Jesus is there. All I need to do is be obedient to him. If I'll be obedient and respond to him in faith, I can trust him with my future. I can give my past to him and I can know that my future is in his hands. You see, Jesus' plan is as certain as his power. Jesus' plan is as certain as his power. Jesus did something that should challenge the notion that he was merely a person, that he was merely a teacher, that he was merely an example. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and three days after he died, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies that had been made hundreds of years before his birth, and he fulfilled his own prediction that three days after he died, he would rise again. Now, in my mind, it's logical and I tend to be a logical person, all right? I tend to be logical. I don't think in terms of, of art. You, you put a beautiful painting in front of me, and I'll kind of shrug my shoulders at it. It's just the type of person I am. I tend to think in terms of logic. And in my mind, it's logical to say that any man who can get up from the dead is somebody that I should listen to. Any man who can beat death is somebody worth following and listening to. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, my worldview, whatever I think of life, has to be challenged. And in fact, this is what was happening in that day in Smyrna. These people were pagans who believed that life was all about death and rebirth. It was about the old going out and the new coming in. It was cyclical. It was circular. It was all about the changing seasons. And yet Jesus describes himself to these people. He said, listen, I'm the first and the last there's a beginning, there's an end, and I'm there. It's not about a cycle. It's about this time that I've put in motion. There's a beginning, there's an end, and I'm there. And then Jesus said, I died and I rose again. The book of Hebrews says this was done one time for all people. This is not something that has to be repeated over and over. This is something that Jesus did in time and in space for me and for you. Jesus' resurrection challenges every worldview. I don't know... As you come into this place this morning, what your worldview is. I know that probably what's most common in our world today is a form of, we might call it agnosticism. We are at a place in our country now that in our culture, being an evangelical Christian is no longer the predominant majority view. There was a time that it was, but it no longer is. And today what we find is that the majority of people, especially once you get out of the Bible Belt in America and you move up north, you move along the coast, you move out west, what you find is that most people simply aren't sure. 
They think there may be a God. They think there probably is a God, but they're not sure that we can know him. They're not sure that we can trust the Bible. They're usually pretty sure that we can't trust organized religion because most of them have been hurt by organized religion in some way. So most people sort of operate in this worldview that just says, well, listen, I don't know. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there's not a God. I don't know. If you ever encounter a person like this who has this worldview, my suggestion would be to go right to the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Because we have more proof that Jesus lived and died and rose again than almost any event that happened in history. How many of you took history class in school? You went to high school, you took history. All right, now how many of you passed it? Pastor, okay, Pastor, it took Pastor Brian a minute to put his hands up. He wasn't sure. If you can trust, let me tell you, if you can trust what's in those history books, Understand that most of what's written in our history books are based on a very small amount of information that we have from those time periods. And the further back in time you go, the less proof we have of what actually happened. Did you know that there are more manuscripts and there is more evidence, there is more evidence found in writing, there is more evidence by the sharing of the story, there is more evidence in history of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ than almost any other historical event. There is not a courtroom in America today, maybe I shouldn't say today, maybe I should say 30 years ago. There is not a courtroom in America 30 years ago where 12 of your peers on a jury would look at the evidence of Jesus' resurrection and claim that it didn't happen. There's simply too much evidence. There are too many eyewitness testimonies. Church, Jesus lived and he died and he rose again as a man. It happened. And if you have this idea that we really just can't know if there's a God and who he is and what he wants, the truth is you're not being honest with the information that you've got in front of you. Because the truth is, the fact that Jesus resurrected should challenge everything that we know and believe about life as it is. The resurrection of Jesus should challenge every worldview, and that's what was happening in Smyrna. And as we all know, when somebody challenges your worldview, it tends to make us angry and uncomfortable. Amen? Have you noticed that in debates today, nobody ever changes their mind? When's the last time you turned on the news... And you had somebody from the left and somebody from the right, and they had a civil conversation, and at the end of it, somebody said, you know what, you're right. I've changed my mind. Thank you for your time today. Nobody ever does it. Today, when our worldview gets challenged, what we tend to do is defend ourselves, get hostile, and sink deeper and deeper into our existing biases. That's what was happening in Smyrna, and that's why the persecution was happening. The testimony of these Christians was challenging the worldview of these people. And the result was persecution. In verse 9, Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The word tribulation means trouble. Jesus was looking at their situation, and he said, I know your trouble, I know what you're dealing with, and I know that you've lost all your money. But he tells them in these little parentheses, but you're rich. He says, I know your trouble, and I know your poverty. Church, isn't it good to know that Jesus hasn't turned his face away from us when we struggle? Isn't it good to know that at our lowest moments, Jesus was right there with us? He's not waiting for us to clean it up and to figure it out and to get it fixed before we can go to him. He is with us right there at our lowest moment, and he loves us anyway. Praise God. That's good news for all of us today. He never turns his face away. 
But he tells them, I see that you're having trouble, and I know what you're dealing with, and I see your poverty. But then he tells them, but you're rich. Jesus was trying to tell us that we don't judge our success by the world's standards. We don't judge our success by the world's standards. Part of the reason that the story of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is good news for our community is because many people in our community have lost it all. We agree? There's a lot of people at what we might call rock bottom. There's a lot of people at rock bottom. And some of these people in our community, and maybe this is you today and we just don't know your story, Some of these people in our community who are at rock bottom believe that they have blown it so bad that they can never get back what they've lost. First thing I would probably point them to is the testimony of some of the believers we have in the room today because it's amazing what Jesus Christ can restore when you think all hope has been lost. But Jesus is reminding them today that yes, you've had trouble, yes, you are in poverty, and this is a new thing for you because you grew up in this rich town with these high-paying jobs, and now you're in poverty, but Jesus is saying, look, look around you, you're rich. What I think Jesus would say to us today at Easton Life Church in Metropolis, Illinois, is I think he would tell us, hey, you may not have what the world has out there, you may not have the best of everything that the world tells you that you need, but when you look around your church, You look at your family, and you look at what God has done in your life. We are rich, rich people. We are a rich church today. Amen? It's not about our house. It's not about the car we drive. It's not about the job we have. We are rich because Jesus has done something in us that has passed on to the people around us. Jesus told these people, you may look poor. They may think you're poor, but the truth is you're rich. And what they have, what you have, they can't take from you. That's the kind of rich I want. That's the kind of riches I want. But it wasn't just their poverty and their trouble. He talks in verse 10. He talks in verse 10, or in verse 9, rather, at the second half of verse 9, about slander. Has anybody ever talked about you before? Have you ever been the subject of slander? Pastor Brian, you might want to raise your hand, brother. You've been on topics at least once that I know of before they shut that thing down. If you do ministry for very long, you will become the subject of slander because people don't like it when you tell them that they're living in sin and you need to stop. That offends people, and they tend to defend their worldview. And you can wind up on the bad end of some not-so-pleasant conversations that you may or may not and probably are not a part of. They had been slandered. People in this rich little town were talking bad about these Christians. Look what he says. He says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and the slander of those that say they are Jews but are a synagogue of Satan. This is heavy language to describe the people that were talking bad about him. It's likely that there wasn't actually a literal synagogue of Satan in the city of Smyrna. What he's referring to is language that was used in prophecy that shows the reality that in this world, most people tend to think that we are somewhere in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? You ask somebody their political standing, they say, oh, well, I I try to just kind of stay in the middle. You ask somebody their religious standing, what do you believe about God, what do you believe about Jesus? They say, well, I try to just, you know, I'm not an atheist, I'm I'm not an immoral person, I try to just be a good person, but I'm not one of those crazy religious people. I just try to plant myself in the middle and just kind of try to please everybody. But what Jesus was saying about these people that were slandering the Christians, he said, listen, they think they're doing God's work, but the truth is they're serving Satan. 
And chances are, these people that Jesus said were a member of the church of Satan, they would have been very offended at Jesus' words because most people think that if I do something that's maybe just a little wrong, that doesn't mean I'm serving Satan. But the truth is, there are only two paths in this life that you can go down. Jesus said there is a narrow way that leads to life, and there's a wide way that leads to destruction. And most people are following Satan on that wide path, and most of them have no idea how dark the road is they're traveling. They don't think they're following Satan. They think they are being good, moral, and even sometimes religious people. Some of the worst evil in the world has happened under the guise of religious service and duty. The truth is, there is no religion that you can implement into your life that's going to put you in a right relationship with God. There is no church you can join. There is no water you can get dunked in. There is no amount of money that you can give that will put you in right relationship with God. The truth is, Jesus was telling them today, back then, and he tells us today, that right relationship with God comes one way. It comes by grace And it comes through faith. Right relationship with God comes by grace, through faith. It does not come by heritage, and it does not come by religion. It does not come by heritage, and it does not come by religion. If your grandma was a good moral woman who loved the Lord, that doesn't mean that you get to inherit her faith. Your faith must be your faith, not her faith. My dad's faith is not my faith. That's his faith. If I want faith, I need to have my own faith. It doesn't come from religion. It doesn't matter what church you grew up in. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter if you've prayed the prayer or if you've been dunked in the water. The truth is, if Jesus has not transformed your heart, you don't have Jesus. You say, well, listen, I don't like the sound of that because I was told that if I'll say these words and I'll get in the water, then I'll be a Christian. The truth is, what you find in Jesus' words is that Jesus is not looking for a prayer, and he's not looking for religious duty. He's looking for your heart and for your life. He's looking for followers. He told it to Nicodemus like this. Nicodemus says, what must I do to be born again? And man, wouldn't it have been easy if Jesus would have said, Nicodemus, look, this is easy. You find yourself a good Bible-believing church, and you go join up with them. And when they start baptizing, you get in that water and you get baptized. And when that basket goes around, you drop money in that basket. You do those things and you will be born again. But Jesus said it like this. He said, listen, if you want to have eternal life, you must literally be born of water and of spirit. Nicodemus said, what in the world are you talking about, water and spirit? What Jesus was saying is, hey, when we're born, we're born of water. Our physical birth is necessary But the birth of the Spirit is what changes us and gives us eternal life. If the work of the Holy Spirit is not active in your life, the Bible says you are not one of His. I want to ask you this morning to check yourself. Take spiritual inventory. Has Jesus Christ truly become the Lord of your life? Do you have Him calling the shots in your life, or are we trying to get there out of religious activity and religious duty? Jesus is clear. These that call themselves Jews, these that believe themselves to be religious and moral, they are not who they think they are. They are followers of Satan. I would also encourage us this morning, be careful. Be careful to gossip about people that are doing the work of God. Be careful to gossip about people that are doing the work of God. If we have issues 
with ministers, and I'm not just talking about elders and deacons. I'm talking about people in churches. It is so easy to sit in the back or to sit on the internet and look at other people and say, well, I don't like what they're doing. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's appropriate. If you've got an issue, be careful to gossip about it and be quick to go to the person and ask the question. Far too many people are willing to talk to others, but they're not willing to talk to God. They're not willing to talk to the person they've got the issue with. If we could get that right in the church, things would be much better than they are today. Verse 10, Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He tells them, you've already suffered. I see your tribulation. I see your poverty. I see that people are talking about you. And then he gives them news that you and I probably don't want. It would be so easy to preach the gospel today if I could tell you that, Brother Jerry, if you'll get saved, all the trouble in your life will stop bothering you. All those people at work that are bothering you, they'll quit bothering you if you get saved. You come accept Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior. Levi, all those issues at home, they'll go away. You got marriage problems? Your wife will start listening to everything you say. Y'all are like, yeah, I know that's a lie. Wives, your husbands will actually start doing something around the house. Like, no, nah, I know that ain't going to happen. Wouldn't it be great if we could say, listen, the answer to all your problems in life is Jesus Christ. And that sort of, sort of is true. But if I stand up here today and say, listen, you got trouble in your life, you come forward, you accept Jesus Christ, and all your suffering just goes away. And you can be on easy street from here on out. You'll live an easy life. And you'll die an easy death one day old and in your bed and life will be good and it'll be easy and you don't have to suffer anymore and you can just slide on into heaven with Jesus one day into glory church. We could fill this building up no problem because our community wants an easy answer to difficult problems. Amen? That's why they keep going to drugs. That's why they keep going to alcohol. That's why they keep going to gambling. That's why they keep going to sexual addiction. That's why they stay in their anger. They want an easy answer to a really difficult problem. But the truth is, Jesus is not here to abolish our suffering. He's here to abolish our fear. He doesn't tell them, hey, church at Smyrna, I got good news for you today. All this suffering is about to go away because I'm going to make life easy for you. What he says is, I see your suffering. There's more coming. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Now, why is this relevant for us today? I believe it's relevant because... About 13 months ago, the overwhelming view of our country and of evangelical Christianity sounded something like this. There's a virus out there, and this virus is killing people, and it's making people really sick. So if you are going to love your neighbor and be a good Christian, what we must do is isolate separate, shut down ministry because the worst possible thing we could do is cause somebody to suffer. And you may say, well, Pastor Blake, that's very abrasive and offensive and you must not believe in everything that's going on. Listen, I was in the hospital for three days myself. I'm not denying the existence of the suffering. What I'm denying is that we should let fear dominate our decision-making as Christian people. Because when we shut down the ministry out of fear of suffering, we aren't reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, because Jesus said, listen, suffering is coming. You can run from it. 
You can isolate, you can lock your doors, and you can try to avoid the suffering thinking that life will be easier. But the truth is, Jesus' life was not easy, and he told all of his followers, if you come after me, it's going to feel like you're packing a cross on your back. People are going to suffer. He even goes so far as to say, some of you are going to die. And you say, oh my goodness, how is it good news if people have to suffer and even die? Here's how I think it's good news. We all know, if we're honest, and nobody likes to think about it, but here's the logical truth. We all know, at the end of the day, we all have that same appointment, don't we? At the end of the day, unless Jesus returns, and I pray he does, we all have an appointment with that day that we leave this world and we go to meet him. And we know we're going to stand before him. The truth is, Jesus did not come to eliminate the suffering. He came to give us life that was free from the fear of suffering. You see, being a Christian is good news because even though you will suffer like other people suffer, you will have Jesus there with you when you suffer. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown in that fiery furnace. Do you remember that Jesus did not rescue them from the furnace? He simply joined them in the furnace. Jesus is not here to take all the problems away. He is here to walk with you in the problems. And as he walks with you, he will transform you. And as he transforms you, your fear will go away. And when your fear goes away, you can stand in the face of what our culture is terrified of, and you can say, we will not stop, we will not shut down, we will not quit ministering, we'll move forward, and what God will do is he will grow your church, and he'll grow your giving, and he'll grow your ministry, and you'll look around, and you'll go, man, isn't God good? We don't have to live in fear. This is the life we can have. But what most people are looking for today when they walk into a church building is they're not looking to face the problem hand in hand with Jesus. They're looking for a Jesus that'll just take away the problem. And they walk away disappointed because they find out it's not how he always operates. He tells them, behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. But be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. He said, hey, you don't have to fear, and he's calling us to be faithful. Church, God individually rewards our faithfulness. Did you all know this today? That when we go to heaven, we all go to heaven who are Christians by the merits of what Jesus did. We all agree? None of us deserve to go to heaven. All of us who go to heaven only go to heaven because Jesus Christ did what we could not do for ourselves. We agree? That is what we call in the Christian church and what they call in the world today an equitable outcome. And you're going to hear that phrase over and over and over again if you listen to the news very often in our world today. No matter how bad you have lived your life, if you receive Jesus Christ, you will get the same heaven that Pastor Brian gets. And he's about as close to holy as they come, let me be the first to tell you. But the truth is, when we get there, there are those people who have suffered hands in hand with Jesus, and many of them, probably not from our country today, but many of them across the world who are persecuted severely for their faith, many who have gone before us and have died for their faith, God says to them, they're going to receive a crown on that day called the crown of life. That is reserved for those who give their very life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, man, I would love to have that one day. It's not an easy road to travel, 
And we can't do it if we're afraid. Amen? Easy to say, hard to live out. But God rewards our individual faithfulness. But look what else he says. He says in verse 11, as we get ready to close, if I can have some musicians come this morning. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He says, those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the second death is this idea that comes up a few times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21.8, you read this scripture. This isn't the type of scripture we teach our kids in Sunday school, okay? But it's in the Bible. It says, cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's not my favorite scripture in the Bible. But if we're going to understand what Jesus is here to rescue us from, we have to understand exactly what it is. Amen? Be easier not to preach it, but it's in the Bible, so I better preach it because God tells me to. The second death is what happens to those who decide to live this life outside the leadership and the care and the grace of Jesus Christ. The second death refers to this idea that all of us are going to face what the Bible calls the first death. That's when all of us die physically. But the second death is something that happens spiritually to those who are without Christ. All eyes on me for just a second. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today. Every one of us are going to die the first death. Every one. And if we don't die the first death, if Jesus comes back and we get to skip it, we're going to go straight to the courtroom where God's going to sit as judge. And the standard that he's going to judge you and me by is Jesus Christ, his son. Now, for those of us who are what the Bible calls in Christ, I'm going to say something like this. God says, Blake Jackson, why do you get into heaven? I say, there is no reason to put me in heaven. None whatsoever. I don't deserve it. Haven't done anything near enough. I've not met the standard of perfection that is Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to say is, Jesus Christ lived and died in my place. The penalty of the second death, Jesus took it on the cross for me. And I put my faith and trust in him, and I put all my chips on the table with him. So God, that's my answer. My answer is Jesus is my only defense. It's all I got. And I believe by faith, that God's going to look at Jesus, his son, and say that Jesus, what you did was enough for Blake Jackson. That's what I believe in faith is going to happen. But if you today have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you've been religious, maybe you've looked at the part on the outside, maybe you've tried to be a good person, but if you've never gone in before God and confessed your sin, confessed to him that you've failed, and asked him to forgive you, and committed your life to following him, if you've never done that, you don't have that hope that I've got on that day. And Revelation 21.8 tells us the consequences, and the consequences are severe. You say, are you trying to scare me into making a decision? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to tell you what God says. And if that's scary, that's between you and God. But I want to invite you today. The good news is that you can have the same hope that I have. 
and so many people in this room have. You say, how do I have Jesus on my side? You simply confess that you need him. You confess your sin. You confess to God, I'm a sinner, and I need your grace, and I'm putting my faith in you today. And the Bible says that God will never turn away a repentant heart, a heart that's ready to turn from the old life and seek after Jesus. You can have that today. It says in Revelation 12, 11, talking about those who conquer those who will survive the second death. It says that they triumphed over him being Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Those of us who have the hope in Jesus, we know the blood of Jesus covers us and we're willing to speak it with our mouths. Jesus Christ is Lord. How many can say that?